This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Have some new information. Bottom line is, we have video from the news people of the last three weeks of 74 showing where Otis was dug up in relation to where the highway is. But we don't have one showing helicopter view. We have it on the round. That's not enough. If we have one showing the helicopter view in relation to where Otis After our failed attempt to locate the site where Otis Reedling had been buried in hopes of locating the woman Davis had Burt kill, we decided to give it another shot. This time, we would use every bit of information we could gather, and that meant Stoney calling on former GBI special agent Bob Ingram. Every official... Every lawman from Hall County to Jackson, Bear, Walton is involved. Can you possibly call your people and find out if there's anything they can give us on where Otis is buried, any coordinates, any information, footage from the bridge, anything of that yeah, nature? I, I can certainly try. Uh, I'll give, a, give my best effort uh, work work on that for you. Try to find if there was Sir, if you uh, if you could do that, you could save us so much time and so much money. I know, I know. It, it'd be a whole lot uh, easier because look, you're looking for a deal in a haystack without that. And while Ingram went to work trying to gather information on his end, we gained access to the former Jackson farm to see what we could find there, based on Bert's map. We traveled down a long and winding dirt road to reach the banks of the Mulberry River this time in a different county, but a short 15 minutes away from our previous location. Stoney and his son sat in the back of a pickup truck for the duration of the bumpy ride. It looked like something straight out of a Ford commercial. Once near the riverbank, we parked and set out to search for one of the markings on Bert's map, a pile of white rocks, so that we could orient ourselves. And as luck would have it, we found them right there, not far off the side of the dirt road. Stoney poked around a bit and gave his son a bit of a history lesson about the farm his father grew up on. His family and families before him, people that sharecropped this thing for so many years, every time it would flood, he would make it rich, they plant cotton. When he plowed to find the rock, they put it here. He draw the map, it was a marker that had been here when he came and when he left. Uh, and that's the first thing, I don't know where those are, but nowhere else are they on these properties. Yeah. So, it tells you that he was here as a boy, and it was quite rocks. And those exes relate to it. So that's, that's the kind of rocks he used. Yeah. To hide people, places under houses, under church, whatever. A flat rock with the tip sticking up. Took a little work to get it up, but you found the tip of the rock. You see this rock right here? Yeah. That's similar to the rock when I climbed over the house in 67 to get a bag of money. It seemed that this pile of white rocks was just that. A pile of rocks. The map showed the rocks maybe a hundred feet from the riverbank, and if you turned left and were to walk along the bank, the map showed there were two X's spaced out evenly over another couple hundred feet. But as we scouted out the area, we quickly realized that the brush and undergrowth was far too thick here as well for us to even explore more than a few feet. So we decided to rent a small tractor to clear the area that most looked like the map marking locations, and Stoney's son went to work. Well, we called it a day. The frustration was beginning to set in. 
Talk of, we might be out of our league here. What the hell were we thinking? Spread like wildfire through our little search group. And then something dawned on me that our CSI friend, Cheryl McCollum, mentioned a few days prior. What happens anytime you have a case that's this old, and you're talking about decades, right? The landscape does change. So where it used to be maybe an open field or an area where a a body was buried, there could be trees. Um, There could be an an oak tree through the bones, for that matter. So finding the actual location is going to be critical, and that's where the equipment comes in, because a rough map of somebody's memory and somebody else saying, oh, I've been here, but it looks like anybody that's ever visited their old childhood home, right? Everything looks very a lot smaller, like, God, I remember this hill being so big on my bike, and now it's nothing. Look, it's a gamble. It's a long shot, but it's a shot. So, again, you've got a map. You've got memory. I'm all about it. There's no failure here. Y'all being here is not a failure. If we don't find anything at all, here's the way I see it. We know where the body's not. So we come back and we try again. Maybe we bring cadaver dogs next time. We bring ground penetrating radar. We bring drones. Cadaver dogs. The fact that we didn't even think of this first shows our inexperience with finding bodies. Those dogs are going to be able to do what I can't do. Like you pick up a scent? Oh, no question. Really? Oh, no question. What do they need to pick up that scent? Nothing. Turn them loose. Even if it's three or four? Turn them loose. The body has over 180 different chemicals, so when it decomposes, it's in that ground. It stays right there in that dirt. So even if you unearth it just a little bit, that dog will go right to it. One week later, we came back to the Mulberry River, this time with two cadaver dogs, and had no idea what we were in for. From Imperative Entertainment, this is In the Red Clay. Why, can you share selfies? Tony is still enamored with his dad because his dad, you don't know, his dad took him everywhere and did everything with him. But, you know, Stoney was a teenager, very, very impressionable. And, you know, his, his dad was, uh, you know, a good gambler, a good pool player, a womanizer. You know, drove the fastest cars. You know, he, he was the best of the best at everything he did, and he, he and he was damn good at killing too. Billy Burton is is without a doubt one of the most prolific killers uh, in in the history of of our country. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, he was a bad man. Killed a lot of people. He just didn't do it for one thing or another. Uh, you know, he had multiple motives, multiple reasons that he traveled, uh, did uh, killings for hire and contract. And uh, he was more than just uh, a mean ass, a redneck from Wyander, Georgia. 
Uh, yeah, his son knows that very well, Stoney. 14-year-old Stoney would immediately set out to follow in his father's footsteps after Billy's dramatic arrest for bank robbery in April of 1974. He wanted to carry on the family tradition and keep the so-called Dixie Mafia alive. In his adolescent mind, he would usher in a new era and keep the empire his father helped create from ever falling. I put four on robbery before I was caught on one one when I was 15. They put me in jail. I wouldn't tell them shit. They put me in a hole. And for a toilet, they had a piece of pipe in the corner, steel mat, solid steel doors, steel window, a little plate to hand you something. Stayed there 40 days. My hair looked like you put lard in it. My mother finally got the juvenile judge. When she got him up there and seen my condition, when they opened the door, I couldn't see. But they couldn't get a word out of it. I was solid as my daddy because I was raised to be my daddy, you know. Just wouldn't rant. Fuck you. That's my favorite word. Judge, see my condition. I just had to turn 15. He said, if you don't let this boy here right now, I'll see you in federal prison. I walked out. All it done was embolden me more. So from that moment on, I turned it on. But for now, 14-year-old Stoney, for the first time in his young life, would have to watch his father paraded to the Louisville, Georgia courthouse in a spectacle not seen in the state before or since Bert's arrest. Jim West wanted the whole world to see that he had finally caught the infamous Billy Burt, and he did it on a grand scale. What I seen was four snipers on top of the courthouse, but they dressed in black, but they were not hid. They were moving to make sure people seen them. They were no less than 24 step patrols with pump shotguns lying 10 foot apart around the courthouse, the entire block, for everybody to see. When they brought my father from the jail to the courthouse, they had three federal marshal cars in front, three in the back, him in a county police car with a county police car in the front and the back, and that convoy slowly brought him to the jail. Now the whole time a helicopter flew over him. When he got out to walk from the car to the courthouse, of which they had set a metal detector machine and was making people walk through it and strip searching them, including the judge. The helicopter hovered while a man in black, once again, where everybody could see, hung out with a rifle and followed my father. When they got in the courtroom, there was 30 federal marshals and lawmen and only 20 spectators outside the room we was. The unprecedented scale of security and massive show of force was very much intended. Jim West knew all too well, with such a circus outside the courthouse, any jury would likely have made up their mind before they even took their seats. Just one more thing to secure Bert's place in prison for the rest of his life. The officer stood behind him, had a pump shotgun, it must have been about 20 inches long, and he would let the jury hear him and he stayed behind him. Now when he got up to go from that chair to the witness stand, 
two or three times during the trial. Another officer ran up, pulled his pistol, and caught the gun and did like this. And it's standing behind him up there. Well, the jury objected and said, Your Honor, uh, we don't feel comfortable. If, if that shotgun goes off, it's going to hit us. And the judge said these words, it's necessary. And while Jim West was seemingly showboating his capture of Billy Burt, the precautions they were taking weren't totally out of left field. There was worry that members of the Dixie Mafia may try to break him out of jail. And as far as the police and federal marshals were concerned, they wouldn't put anything past them. They would be prepared for anything. As the trial of Billy Burt, Billy Wayne Davis, and Bobby Jean Gaddis began, things started to really sink in with Stoney that his father may not be coming home this time. It seemed that things were different this time. When the trial started, the first time I became concerned, and the start of it, they, when the teller got up there to explain how the robber acted, and she said he jumped over a five-foot counter as if it was with ease. I knew that was him. He's the only could do it. Used to have bets in the pool room who could stand flat-footed and jump a pool table three foot tall. He's the only one could do it. A five-foot counter, I imagine standing flat-footed and jump over that. Only he could do it. He was just blessed at athletic, you know. As the trial progressed, the charges mounted. They added assault charges to Billy's rap because it was stated in a report by Jim West that Billy had slapped a young female bank teller in the cheek during the robbery. But when the young woman took the witness stand, she provided a slightly different account. When she said they had him charged with assault for slapping the teller, upon examination, she admitted that it was a not a slap on the cheek, but a slap on the butt. And furthermore, a wink, but he didn't say nothing. And the lawyer asked her, how did it make you feel? And she said, well, to tell you the truth, it put me at ease. And I see my mother's eyes cut across to him. Boy, like you son of a bitch. And I seen his eyes looking straight ahead that she didn't grin. I knew. I knew. But the real nail in the coffin would come from Billy Wayne Davis's testimony. That's when I became concerned. I said, damn it, this is so real. And sure enough, when Billy Wayne Davis got up there and told all the details, they convicted him. Well, they gave him 225 years. But the judge run it consecutive and give him 25 years. So as they walked out of the courtroom, they asked my, before, they asked my dad, you have anything to say? He said, no, sir. When they asked Bobby Gaddis, yes, sir. He said, nothing, sir. Lord knows he didn't do it. Bobby Gaddis was always weak. They called him a big dummy in the circle. Bob Brooks, the man that worked at the bank when it was robbed, was present at the trial, too. I remember Gaddis crying like a baby when the judge sentenced him. Sunday Bird never cracked a smile. He was stone cold. As Bert was led from the courtroom to the holding cell, he said nothing. He just whistled a song by Kitty Wells as he walked. When they got back to the cell, had him and Bobby side by side, Bobby's wife, my mother, me. Dad looked at Bobby, he said, son, see there, I told you, maybe we go places. Bobby said, 
You son of a bitch ain't got a little heart. <laughs> and then he said, listen, we'll do this damn seven year, eight year, and get the hell out of here. We'll deal with Davis. Just, they ain't got no choice. So that judge, for the first time in history, sent us better Sunday bird for bank robbery to Marion, Illinois. Why Marion? Because it was the most secure in the United States in 1974 that was, it took the place of Alcatraz. Most of the convicts in it was the one that come from Alcatraz. With Billy's 225 year sentence being run concurrently for all charges, he would be eligible for parole after just a fraction of that time. Concurrent means how many since you get, it all boils down to the one highest since you get. So he had effectively 25 years. Federal parole that time, you may parole in one third. He'd been out in less than eight years. He would bide his time until he was released and could take care of Billy Wayne Davis personally. And this wasn't lost on Davis or the federal agents. They all knew that the minute Billy Burt was released from prison, Billy Wayne Davis was a dead man walking. Told Bobby Jean Wallet to get out and take care of Davis. Oh, he was a dead ass. And to make matters worse for Davis, a month after the verdict was passed down, Billy Burt would be headed back to court, the judge citing an error in his original conviction. Here's what they done to him. A month later, a judge ruled the 225 years to give my father for the bank robbery that Davis testified had a mistake, they give him a new trial. Jim West come to Davis, he says, you know that Billy Burt is not gonna let you by with this. You know he's got a new trial. Your only out is to put him away or put him to death. It didn't take much to, to talk him into that. So what did he tell? He told about the Ridge thing, he told about Otis Ridder on the Mulberry River. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Davis had implicated Burt in the torture and murder of Reed Oliver Fleming and his wife, the elderly couple tortured and killed in their home in Wrens, Georgia, the year before. The FBI and local police immediately set out to find the body of 24-year-old Otis Reedling, who had been reported missing on November 4th of 1973. Davis claims Burt killed him as well. 
we're obviously looking for something, and what we're looking for was would best be uh, remain unknown at this time. It's not a body, though, is it? We're looking for something that would, if we find, if we find it, would be uh, subject to crime laboratory examination, and that's all I can tell you. Do you think it's your son? Uh, I can't believe it is. Why? Why do you think so? Well, he was wearing blue pants when he left, and that's what that guy FBI said. You know, a few minutes ago, said he was had blue pants on. And he's been missing since when? November fourth. They said they would know for sure in a few minutes, and they got the gains fair. And you don't know if he was involved in any sort of uh, trouble? Well, as far as I know of, he went. Now, when they went to the Mulberry River to dig for Otis, he couldn't tell exactly where they was. They had to dig for two weeks to find him. Because he did not bury him there. He killed Otis, but my father and Bobby Jean Geddes buried him there. And after two weeks of searching, there on the red clay banks of the Mulberry River, the FBI found Otis Reedling's body, buried face down in a shallow grave. Though there would never be enough physical evidence to link Burt directly to that murder, they did indict him on the murders of the Flemings. And Burt, once again, headed back to trial. Davis, for providing the information to Jim West, would receive immunity from any connection to these murders, also having numerous murder indictments in other counties dropped as well as part of the deal. It seemed as if Burt was being railroaded by Jim West and Davis. For the rest of his life, he would vehemently deny that he was a part of this particular murder. When he took the witness stand, he made sure the court knew they were being fooled by Davis. He said, ladies and gentlemen, me and this son bitch right here had done more dirt than any two people ever know. The truth ain't in him. He is just as bad a person as anybody you ever know, and I am too. Bobby Jean Geddes is not nothing like us. If you believe anything he says, then you believe anything I say. And he let it roll. He talked about four murders right there on the witness stand, right there, and the damn police were running out there like clockwork. It didn't help Bobby Jean. He convicted him too. But he talked about four murders right there, and Davis was fucked. Davis and Burt gave conflicting accounts of what happened on December 22, 1973, when the murders took place. This is where things get complicated, and while there's far too much to this story to go into every detail, it's basically this. Burt admitted to robbing several homes in Wrens, Georgia on the night of Friday, December 21st, with Dixie Mafia member Charlie Reed, the home of Jerry Heyman being one. That's where the valuable guns and coins were stolen from a safe. Bert stated that he was not interested in robbing the Flemings because he felt more money, as well as drugs, were to be found at the other homes, some of which belonged to small-time drug traffickers. He insisted that it was Davis and Bobby Jean Gaddis who committed the murder, and that Davis had taken a fourth accomplice to the Fleming home the month prior with the intent of robbing them but decided to leave when they noticed an unfamiliar car in the driveway. 
Gaddis would later go back to scout out the Flemings, pretending to be interested in a used truck the man had for sale. So there's the telltale sign. Bobby Gaddis was five foot, six inches tall and weighed 330 pounds. He was so big that when they arrested him, he couldn't get his arms together for the handcuffs. The most identifiable of all nine of the whole gang. You don't send him in broad daylight to the town that you're about to murder two people never been seen before. You don't send that identifiable person uh, to do the pre-investigation of what you're going to do that night and ask him about a truck. Unless you just are not a good criminal, much less a career criminal. And then that night, Bobby Jean was back in there in Billy Wayne, torturing them people, trying to make them give up more than the 4000 they had found in that house. He would have never went back to such a horrible scene. Why did he go back? Because the son of a bitch left his gun there. Why my dad go? At this point, it was damage control. If David gets caught, we all caught. The handgun would prove to be a key piece of evidence, as it is one of the few things both Davis and Bert mentioned in their testimonies. Davis said that Bert borrowed the gun from him, and they would later ride back to the house together in a green Cadillac, also borrowed by Bert, for him to retrieve it, realizing it had been left at the crime scene after the murder. Bert claims he was asked by Davis to come with him to Wren's to retrieve the gun that he had left. And on that ride there, in a green Cadillac, Davis told him about the murder he and Gaddis had committed. Maybe the most crucial piece of evidence was the testimony of two key eyewitnesses. So my father, with his speech impediment, flagged down, you know, two working guys coming along. Now you're talking four or five in the morning. Two men getting off a late-night work shift at a local stone quarry had stopped to assist two men who flagged them down on the side of the road, just 10 miles outside of Wren's. The men were having problems with the fan belt in their green Cadillac, and Bert was positively identified by both witnesses. With Davis's testimony, the gun, and the two eyewitness accounts, the jury found that there was sufficient evidence to convict Bert of armed robbery, for which he received two life sentences and first-degree murder of the Flemings, for which he received two death sentences. Oddly enough, he was found not guilty of robbing Jerry Heyman's house, the crime he openly admits to committing. In my entire life, uh, I've never been able to come to terms with the, the, the depth and the severity of that crime and being associated with my father. It's one thing to kill. It's another thing to torture innocent people. The day he sat in court in 1975, he looked at their son. He said, I did not kill your mama and daddy. He looked at the courtroom. He said, I did not kill these old people. I knew he did. And I understand Stoney's logic, as unusual as it may sound. The Flemings were brutally tortured. For several hours, they had been repeatedly beaten and strangled with the wire coat hangers and electrical cords in hopes that they would tell where they kept the rest of their money hidden. Mrs. Fleming was strangled so severely that her eyes and tongue protruded from her skull. They would then torture Mr. Fleming in the same manner and use wire cutters to split his thumbnail down the middle 
making his wife watch in hopes that she would tell so that the men might show mercy. But they never did. It was awful. It was too awful to even think about. One time I asked my father, I said, Dad, why don't you uh, do something? To pr-? He said, listen, listen, son, it's my job to keep my damn mouth shut. It's law's job to do there, and it's your job to keep your mouth shut. That was into that. He said, I said what I had to say in court, and you cannot do 10 banks or 10 murders and wait till they get you and one say, whoa, I'll take a lot of on this one. Can't do it. I seen his point. What he obviously didn't understand was the weight that I carried from beginning to end about that one thing. If you was a 14-year-old child and your father was arrested, and all that come to light came to light, and you were not ashamed of anything he done, really. Except that one thing. That one thing is, was a shame of my life. But the rest of it, in your mind, you could justify with some kind of reason, like vengeance, self-preservation, hit for hire. But that one thing just made him an animal, just made him something you couldn't fathom. And no matter how it come up or how you talked about it, you could not sugarcoat it, you could not take away from it, you just had to bow your head and just, in your heart and mind, you know that he didn't do it. But when you mentioned it to him, he was so hardcore that he said, your job is to keep the mouth shut, mine is too. So my point is, if a man don't talk, he don't talk, even to save himself. For in his mind, he was just as guilty of hell and all that goes with it. It's the first time he shot the two men across the bridge, he's gonna take the woman. I believe that with all my heart. That's why he was taught. Yeah. You break one commandment, you break them all. And I believe in his mind, he rationalized that his soul was gone anyway. Stoney's one goal in all of this is to prove that his father is innocent of this murder. And in the end, after nearly 50 years, he may just have the evidence to do that. But Billy Sunday Burt wouldn't go down without a fight. He was as rock solid as a gangster could be. And Davis had broken the code, the unwritten law. He had ratted to save his own ass. And in the gangster world, nothing is worse than a rat. So when the judge handed down the death sentence to Bert, he made his final move in dramatic fashion. When the judge sent him dead, he said, do you have anything to say? He said, yes, Your Honor, can I make a phone call? He said, who you want to call? He said, well, I'd like to call and confess about two more murders. And the judge said, Sheriff, by all means, give the man a phone. The call Bert made was to Bobby Lee Cook, 
the attorney who, along with Hilton Dupree, represented the seven men convicted for the murder of two elderly doctors in 1971, dubbed the Marietta Seven. Mr. Cook, it's been a I'm in Jefferson County, just got two deaths in two lives in this murder. Your uh, seven defendants, you and Mr. Pree, have been in prison right now are innocent, and I can prove it. Bob Lee Cook asked him two questions. He answered it, and Bob Lee Cook knows he's telling the truth. Billy Burt had just confessed to the murder that resulted in one of the largest trials in the history of the state of Georgia, and he was taking Davis down with him. It would be Burt who would have the last laugh, all the way to the electric chair. Earlier, Davis had testified at a South Georgia murder trial that had resulted in a death sentence for Burt. Today in Douglas County, Burt was on the witness stand giving testimony which could put Davis on death row beside him. More than 100 witnesses have been subpoenaed to testify in the Billy Wayne Davis trial. GBI agents, sheriff's deputies, and state troopers were here this morning to provide security. The media would explode after Burt's courtroom confession of the Matthews murders. After all, the DAs, police, and federal agents that had spent years working the Matthews murder case had been absolutely certain they had the guilty men in prison. Or so it would seem. They had the eyewitness account from Deborah Ann Kidd, the young woman that confessed and testified in exchange for immunity. Suddenly, public officials had a lot of explaining to do. The story reeked of corruption, and Billy knew that by taking down Davis, he would, of course, be implicating himself. Davis comes from a well-thought-of family in Cobb County. If there ever was a person who fits the mold of a black sheep, he would be it. Davis appeared to be doing well with a legitimate business, a used car lot on the Bankhead Highway in Austell. Apparently, he liked to gamble. One could only speculate that his hunger for money stemmed from his gambling or his need for capital to finance his business. Whatever it was, Davis apparently developed a gun-for-hire relationship with Billy Sunday Burt of Winder in Barrow County. Some officers have described Davis as the brains of the partnership. Davis would decide what they were going to do. Either one would pull the trigger. As Burt said in his testimony, it was situations like this which he and Davis were involved in many times. When a man like Burt holds life so cheaply, is there anything that he values? Yes, his family, his wife, and five children. Why would a man hold life so cheaply when he's concerned about the future of his family? I don't know, but that's the way it is with Burt. As for Davis, he's just as much a puzzle as most black sheep are. Burt says he doesn't like being a snitch, but he places a higher priority on getting back at Davis for his testimony against him and Wren's. With Burt already given two life sentences and two death penalties, how much worse could it really get for him? Defense attorney Bobby Lee Cook asked Burt things that only the murderer would know to substantiate his claim. And for his signed confession, Burt made a deal for the families of the Marietta Seven to pay his wife, Jenny, $20,000 in exchange for his confession which they happily did. He asked him the projector of the bullet. He asked him who was with him. He told him that him and Billy Wayne and Willie Hester, that him and Billy Wayne went in. The doctor pulled his Billy Wayne's mask off. The woman was a professional shooter. Uh, Willie Hester just drove the car, although he got shot on the way out. 
Police sources say Bert has told them that the murder weapons used on the Matthews are buried somewhere in this area. Near Rottenwood Creek, just behind the Sheffield North Apartments on Franklin Road in Cobb County. If Bert is telling the truth, police haven't been able to find anything to prove it, so it's still all theory. The speculation is that Bert is a pathological liar. I've learned that there is little to support Bert's story except he did pass a lie detector test. So did Debbie Kidd when she named the original seven persons convicted in the case. Bert's sister, Mrs. John Dell Gladys, also appeared before the grand jury this afternoon. The grand jurors also heard a videotaped interview with Debbie Kidd. The decision to indict or not to indict Billy Sunday Burt could come before the end of the week. Willie Hester, who Burt implicated in the murder, was still missing. Burt claimed Hester had been shot by Mrs. Matthews, who ran down the stairs wildly firing a handgun during the robbery. Burt himself was nearly hit by Matthews, too. Stoney shed some light on what happened to him. One of the three bullets caught him. My dad brought him in to their house on Virginia Avenue, the same house we lived in when he got picked up, put him on the eating table, took a bullet out of him, put him back on his shoulder, towed him back out, and next night told me to jack the beanstalk. If you missed that, Stoney said his father brought Hester in, put him on the eating table, took a bullet out of him, put him on his shoulder, toted him out, and the next night, Red Stoney jacking the beanstalk. When Willie died, uh... It was sort of an in-house thing, and there was a good reason for it. Hester had begun to get excited by the reward money being offered for information on the Matthews murder case, which continued to rise each few weeks. He would talk openly about it in front of people at the pool room. Bert warned him several times to keep his mouth shut, but clearly, Willie Hester wasn't taking the hint. About two weeks after the Matthews thing, Willie walked in the pool room with the paper language constitution and said, look here. $10,000 reward. My daddy said, son, what the hell you give a damn about that? Don't be bringing that paper, don't be talking about that no more. Well, <laughs> next week, here come Willie. Look at here, $20,000 reward. That damn son, I done told you the shit. What the hell wrong with you? But we had walked in the pool room. Last time, I think the war got to $50,000. Well, that pretty well sealed his fate after three times. So Willie's wife was working at Belts over here, which was Holly Hill Mall, and they were planning to robbery to burglarize it. So my father got Otis to help him. And I guess he made this plan in his head, but the way Willie died was, when they got through robbing Belks, they were coming out, and my daddy shot Willie, killed him. And the reason he killed Willie was Willie couldn't keep his mouth shut, he'd begun not to trust him. And you don't get a man like that paranoid. Him and Otis took buried Willie just outside of Bear County. Throughout the five different trials in the Matthews case, people had begun to question Kidd's story, including several police officers who would even be fired for publicly speaking out about it. It just didn't add up, and there were inconsistencies in her story each time she told it in court. David Morrison, a journalist for the Atlanta Constitution, had begun his own investigation as well, and by the time of Burt's confession, 
the investigation he spearheaded into Kidd's shaky story had proved fruitful. He even began a sort of pen-pal relationship with Bert, writing him letters in prison about his findings on the corruption in the system. But would someone really lie about their friends and their self being involved in a double murder? Why would anyone do that? It just didn't make sense. What they uncovered was nothing short of shocking. The girl's got all kind of personal problems. She's she's a pill-head, typical patsy. Does as she told by ambitious police officers. Deborah Ann Kidd was not only fabricating her story, she was actually put under hypnosis and fed information about the case by federal investigators. This was even reported in the papers. It's also rumored that she was being fed black beauties taken from the evidence room during this time. While under hypnosis, agents were walking her through the evidence they had gathered from the crime scene, such as what the interior of the home looked like, what Mr. and Mrs. Matthews were wearing, how they were killed, and the positions their bodies were left in. Kidd was sent to temporarily stay with a police officer during the trials, which resulted in the two having a romantic relationship for months. After the defense team looked into Kidd further, they found that she wasn't even in Georgia on the night of the murder. She was actually in Greenville, South Carolina. The seven men initially convicted of the murder were set free within a month and later attempted to sue the county officials for wrongful imprisonment. There is still civil litigation pending in connection with the case. Cobb District Attorney Buddy Darden and others have been sued by the seven originally convicted, charging that they were unfairly prosecuted. The file in the case, more than 10 notebooks full of photographs and other evidence. But as to the crime itself, the file on the Matthews murder case remains open, but inactive. When George Busby put, made it public in the Constitution that the state of Georgia would cover all costs in defense of what these guys done to cover their tracks after they framed all these people, and then the same people turned and joined forces with Jim West to convict my father and let Billy Wayne Davis get dropped of all his murders, knowing that in the big picture it didn't matter because he would never get out. And I probably in their reasoning, they're thinking, so what if you don't get convicted of these murders? All we care about is he don't get out. That's the way law do. With the state of Georgia paying for the legal costs of the corrupt politicians, the Marietta Seven were left with virtually no hope of winning their case. They couldn't afford it. Kidd would eventually be tried for perjury, but would serve no time in jail. It seemed that there were so many public officials involved in the corruption of the Matthews murder case, and while several would step down from their positions because of this, the seven innocent men who were framed for murder would just have to take this one on the chin. When will it all be over? When will we know about everyone that Bert says they've killed? We may never know. When Davis is sentenced to the electric chair, if he is, Bert may stop talking, and they'll take the rest of their secrets to the electric chair with them and Stoney's anger over all of this is palpable. Davis and Burt would stand trial for the murder of the Matthews couple. 
Burt would take the witness stand several times and implicate Davis on other murders as well, like that of Harold Amel, the public notary gunned down in his driveway, and Charles Max Sibley, who Davis hired Burt to kill to avoid a gambling debt. He told that they had only ever intended to rob the Matthews. But when Mr. Matthews pulled off the ski mask Davis was wearing, Burt stated, we had to kill them. It was plain to see that he wanted revenge for his former partner rolling over on him. He hated Davis and wanted him dead. When asked in open court by a DA if he wanted to kill Davis, Burt said plainly, I would kill him. Slow. When the dust finally settled, Burt and Davis would be spending the rest of their lives behind prison walls with Bert facing the electric chair. So much had happened already, and still, our story doesn't end here. In the Red Clay is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and created the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Produced and engineered by Shane Freeman, Jason Hoke, and myself. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Voice sessions recorded at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta, Georgia. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. In the Red Clay is a 12-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Follow us on Instagram at In the Red Clay Podcast. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.